a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could uh, find some time to sit and gather in wrong think. To revel in wrong think. It's what we do on a daily basis right here. Oh, I've got some great stuff to share with you today. I'm a, I'm a little bit giddy, and I don't get giddy very often. So uh, let's let's just kind of roll with it and see what happens. First thing I want to mention is, uh, yeah, there was a couple of very uh, very positive things that happened in my home state of Idaho yesterday, and uh, you know it, I, I'm just going to come right out and say one of them was the Idaho Supreme Court actually upheld Idaho's uh, abortion law, which basically says. Uh, abortion on demand, not a thing. There are some exceptions, you know, if, if a mother's life is in danger or in, in rare cases, you know, where the viability of the child's uh, survival is, is in question. Yeah, it, it may be an option, but simply for the convenience of, oops, <laughs> I created another life and I don't really want to take responsibility. Sorry, Idaho is a red enough state that uh, that's, that's just not going to fly. And I'm, I'm not trying to rub salt in the wounds of those who, uh, you know, are, are pro-abortion and, and think that, no, no, that's, that's the highest expression of freedom. And I know there are a lot of people who feel that way. Nonetheless, it's very encouraging. I mean, it's, it's so funny. The newspapers here, the, the news organizations have been going on and on. Well, you know, Idaho has spent three, how much was it? Uh, $300 million, $30 million? I think it was $30 million. I, I can't remember. It's... It's a pretty high amount on the legal battles that, you know, lawsuits from Planned Parenthood and other pro-abortion groups, you know, and, and, and the the implication here is, well, that's taxpayer money being wasted on things that uh, they shouldn't even be spending it on. And, of course, uh, when Roe v. Wade was overturned last year in the Hobbs decision, uh, there was a trigger law that took effect in Idaho, which was immediately, you know, challenged by Planned Parenthood. That lawsuit went forward. They were asking, you know, federal judges, well, please put this on hold, you know, for as long as it takes, wink, wink, you know, to, to figure out that this is unconstitutional. Well, the Idaho Supreme Court uh, looked at it and said, no, nope, the uh, abortion law is constitutional, meaning if you uh, if you want abortion on demand, you're going to have to go somewhere other than Idaho in order for that to happen. And I know for some people, you're going to think, well, gee, that just seems, seems inconsistent with the idea of freedom and liberty. But look, we're talking about protecting innocent life. That is actually one of the functions that legitimate government is supposed to do. It's to protect life, liberty, and happiness. That includes innocent life. And, uh, you know, I I know there's, there's more to this. You can't just boil it down to a political question. There's a morality question, too. And just because abortion is made legal somewhere doesn't mean that uh, it's not a grievous offense in the eyes of God or in the eyes of, you know, traditional morality. Even the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto you. We're way too focused on, you know, the woman's reproductive rights as if that is the only thing that matters when there is really, truly an innocent life at stake. That was understood at one time. But the focus has been shifted. It's kind of a clever bit of rhetorical sleight of hand. Oh, we don't talk about innocent life. We only talk about, you know, reproductive rights. Okay. 
So that was one positive thing. Here's the other thing, though. This is the one that actually does have me giddy. And that is uh, the attorney general, the newly elected attorney general, Raul Labrador, uh, for the state of Idaho. He moved yesterday to dismiss the charges against Sarah Walton Brady. Sarah Brady is the mom who was arrested back in April of 2020 for taking her kids to a park. Remember, this was during all the COVID, you know, hysteria. And and Sarah's offense, at least in the eyes of the state of Idaho and uh, certain vengeful prosecutors and a police department in Meridian, Idaho, that, you know, wanted to show her who was boss, was that uh, she wouldn't just submit, comply, you know, turn around and march away with her tail between her legs, you know, because some police officer barked orders at her. She wanted to know, how is this committing a crime to have my kids here at the park playing? They weren't even playing on, you know, the, the equipment that was, was uh, you know, taped off with crime scene tape. So she finally asked the officer, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to arrest me? And the officer, who apparently his, uh, his ego was engaged at that point, uh, got butthurt by that comment. And uh, yeah, he, in fact, he did arrest her. And, you know, that's one thing, okay? It's, that happens occasionally. Not every cop is going to do that. Not everybody's a bully with a badge. But what's amazing to me is for more than two and a half years, almost three years, the state of Idaho has kept that case going. They have put off time and time again the opportunity for trials. Oh, it's an emergency still. You know, there's still COVID going around, so we can't, you know, do anything about that. But, uh, you know, for, for the better part of three years, Sarah has had to come up with the money for attorneys. She's had to go through numerous attorneys, probably to the tune of about $40,000 out of her pocket and just been dragged through this process in which the process itself is the punishment. And again, I'm going to ask you, what was the crime? Well, ostensibly it was trespassing. She was being trespassed and she didn't listen. So who's the victim? And I know this is, is people are going to think, oh, you're getting pretty libertarian here, Brian. But, uh, you know, damn it, this is this matters. There's a reason why you need to ask these kind of questions. Who was the victim? You can't say, well, the state of Idaho was the victim. Nope, nope. Show me an actual victim who can show actual harm. And the truth of the matter is there is no victim. She didn't assault anybody. She didn't harm anybody. She didn't damage any property. Nobody can show the victim. The only victim here was this butthurt cop's ego. His command presence wasn't enough to get her to comply, so he arrested her. And the crazy thing about this, and and I'm I'm getting a little bit uh, worked up myself over this, the mayor of Meridian, Idaho, the police chief of Meridian, Idaho, are both, oh, what a terrible thing, what a slap in the face for the attorney general to dismiss the, to move to dismiss these charges. Really? Are you guys that petty? Are you that impotent and that threatened by the idea that, well, you know, maybe one of our officers incorrectly applied an arrest? There was no law being broken. The officer simply escalated it to an arrest, and they have dragged this lady and her family. By the way, she's not a cop hater. She's married to a police officer. So, you know, those who want to criticize her, well, she just must hate cops. Nope, sorry. <laughs> I hate to pull the rug out from under you, but that's not the case. But they've kept this going for the better part of three years. And finally, an attorney general was in place who wasn't, you know, slave to the machine, doesn't think that justice means that the state's will is enforced and anybody who questioned the state is questions the state is punished for doing so and and raul labrador made it very clear look given that there was no damage to property or person 
given that she didn't even resist arrest, and given the amount of resources that have been spent on what is just a, a petty misdemeanor charge, it's ridiculous to continue pursuing this thing. And yet you have people in positions of power, political power, police chief, mayor, and, and there, there are others. The news media, by the way, is, is, is really freaking out about this. Oh, so we're just going to reward people's crappy behavior, huh? Oh, they are upset. Why are they upset? Because an injustice has just been thwarted. But they wanted to make an example out of her. And to me, that's the, that's the craziest part. So I, I sound angry. I'm actually very happy for Sarah. I'm actually going to be <clears throat> interviewing her later today on my uh, Nowhere to Hide video cast, which I do for the Idaho Freedom Foundation. I, I'm excited to talk to her. You know, you want to talk, somebody has a right to be angry. Sarah has a right to be ticked off. Facing the power of the state, which has almost unlimited resources and time to just, not to convince you, but just to grind you down. By the way, they did offer her a plea deal. Why don't you just take the $50 fine and admit you were guilty? She didn't take it. And you may think, well, Brian, that would have been the easier thing to do. You're right. It would have been the easier thing to do, but it would have been at the expense of admitting to a wrongdoing that she didn't do. So she would have had to lie. She would have had to sell her soul, or at least a part of her soul, for 50 bucks. A $50 fine and okay. Now that we've proved we're right. You know, I, I know Sarah's a little bit disappointed in some ways that it didn't go to trial. It needed to go to trial. Because a jury needed to turn around and stick this in the ear of the prosecutor and say, you are as full of it as a Christmas goose. This never should have been a case in the first place. And maybe not every juror would feel that way, but just remember, only one juror, just one, is all it takes to hang the jury, and then the state has to decide, okay, mistrial, what do we do? Do we come back and try this again? How far do you think they would be willing to take this? Based on the egos that I'm seeing involved, specifically looking at the Meridian police chief and the Meridian mayor, among others, and the outgoing, or the former attorney general, Lawrence Wasden, I think they'd take it as far as they could. They'd make it last for years if they had to. They just they just can't find it in themselves to admit that they were wrong. Not just wrong, but spectacularly wrong. In the meantime, congratulations to Sarah. I got a great article, a great write-up by Brian Alman from the Gem State Substack, which uh, describes those two victories for life and liberty that took place yesterday. If you need a little bit of encouragement, uh, the bad guys aren't winning every battle. You might want to check that out. It's in today's show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I, I probably skated out onto the thin ice, so I'm just going to go ahead and start doing some uh, figure eights and... Who knows? I might I might do a little twirling here, too, while I'm out there. I might as well enjoy myself. What I'm going to share with you is going to sound just slightly radical to some. But if you are someone who is awakened to the idea that, look, there are people actively trying to take my freedom from me, trying to take away my autonomy, my personal sovereignty, then you understand this is the time where you've got to dig deep and find the courage to stand up. I was telling you in the last segment about Sarah Brady. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Ammon Bundy is another good example of this. You know, the guy who cannot be intimidated by the threat of arrest 
Not because he's out there acting in a criminal fashion, but because when he sees injustice, he will stand up and loudly bring it to other people's attention. In fact, one of the things I got to point out here, this is so, so interesting. Uh, A few months ago, the state of Idaho, actually, there was, uh, it was, I think it was the Meridian Police Department again, uh, surprisingly, uh, took a baby from his mother because this baby apparently, had, the, the parents had missed a doctor's appointment. The baby was, was underweight, but he was not in, in, you know, peril. He was not, you know, in, in he, he wasn't in danger, but he was underweight for his age. And the, the doctor blew the whistle. Well, let's get Child Protective Services involved. And in they came and, you know, they, the, they immediately, you know, wanted to take the baby away from his parents. And they did. And it was it, the, the video of the arrest and, and the taking of the baby is just so sickening. The lying, the manipulation, anything to get compliance, anything to get. They actually arrested the mother's sister because they mistook her for her, her sister for her. Crazy stuff. So they took the baby to St. Luke's Hospital. I think it was St. Luke's in uh, in uh, Boise, Idaho, and Ammon Bundy got word of this. He's a family friend of this family, and he brought protesters, and they stood outside the hospital. And you know, there's a police presence out there. The police ended up arresting Ammon. They arrested his campaign manager at the same time. You know, just uh, again, this charge. Well, you were trespassing and and whatnot. But people were protesting, and they did this with Sarah Brady's arrest too. People protested outside the homes of the police officer, I believe the judge, maybe even the hospital administrator. Now, peaceful protest. But what's crazy, and, and this was in the case of Sarah Brady, you know, because there were those protests, the uh, the police chief in, in Meridian, Idaho, is actually talking about, well, you know what we need? In this new legislative session, we need to have laws passed that protect our public servants and make sure that nobody can protest outside their home. Now, I understand there are some strongly mixed feelings. And actually, I have friends on, on you know, the, the freedom side who are like, yeah, that's crossing a line. I don't know. My mind is not made up on that because I believe that there may come a time where actually that's, that is the most effective way. People peacefully protesting, even if it's just standing with signs outside the homes of people who are acting on the part of the state. These agents of the state, these actors for the state need to be held accountable. Well, that's inciting violence. Yeah, in the minds of of government bureaucrats who use violence to get their way, you know, they love to play the victim. And so it'll be interesting to see if somebody does, in fact, uh, suggest a law or introduce a bill that, well, you can no longer protest out here. But here's my point. People standing up are not doing so because there's some radicals who are just out there, the troublemakers, that's all they are. They're just trying to, trying to cause troubles with an otherwise perfect system that's just working to serve the people. They are truth warriors, and that's the choice you and I have in front of us. And, and in fact, there's a great article from Dr. Robert Malone, MD, victim or truth warrior during 2023. See, a lot of us right now are struggling with the idea that ah, I'm kind of helpless in the face of all this. What can I do? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. I don't have any real power, but you do. And that choice is, will you just sit back and be a victim who does what they are told and, you know, has to just kind of go along because of what can I do? Or will you be a truth warrior? Now, I mention Sarah Brady, I mention Ammon Bundy as examples of that's what truth warriors have to do. Now, you'll note, both of them have been arrested for standing up for truth. 
And, and I'm not trying to tell you that, uh, well, therefore, that means they cannot be trusted. After all, anybody who's been arrested must be a criminal. We live in a time where a person who is going to stand up for truth is going to, they're, they're going to realize very quickly Alexander Solzhenitsyn, when he wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, actually, I don't remember if this was in the Gulag Archipelago, but uh, the author of the Gulag Archipelago noted, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. We live in such a time today. And so before you automatically look down on people, well, they've been arrested. They must have done something wrong. you got to understand, no, it's just that the system is that out of control. And if you're going to be a truth warrior, that's one of the possibilities you may have to consist. Would you be willing to be arrested to stand for truth? You know, the very threat of arrest gets most people to, oh, you know, that's, that's, that's yanking their leash. <clears throat> you know, the, the, um, the enforcers are just trying to cow you back into submission. But a person who can peacefully stand their ground, yeah, they're, they're going to stand firm. Now, Dr. Malone actually has three very key suggestions about what can you do when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you feel like there's nothing you can do to stop what's going on. He has three suggestions. First one is learn about fifth generation warfare. And he says, don't be intimidated by this term. You're going to learn that this is something that you already know a lot about. If you're active on the Internet, if you're on social media, you already understand a lot about crowd psychology, trolls, bots, swarm decision making, and the power of influences to help set the framework for how we see the world, how we interpret that fire hose of information coming at us. He says, think of it as akin to learning about how Madison Avenue advertising agencies manipulate you and your children to eat processed foods, to drink sugary drinks, etc. Learn so that you can recognize their advertising tricks when they pull them. Advertising is typically deployed in corporate media because that's central to the corporate media business model. And what our governments and the pharmaceutical industry, as well as our military and intelligence agencies have been doing to us, is like deploying the most powerful advertising campaign in the history of the world on all of us over the last three years. So he says, know your enemy, his strategy, his tactics, his mission and goal is to control what you think, believe, and feel, basically to control your soul. And what he's pointing out here means fifth generation warfare is what's been deployed on you by your government. He gives some very solid examples, lots of articles you can follow up on to, to confirm this for yourself. The second task, and I think this is a really important one, find a way to forgive those around you that have been hypnotized. He says, as far as I'm concerned, those who seek revenge should first dig two graves. I'm absolutely not advising that we should have a truth and uh, reconciliation commission and just forgive and forget those who've done this to us. But he says, those of us who, those who did cooperate with government in deploying these thought weapons will continue to do so in the future unless we find a way to stop them. But he's not talking about the ones who are actively pushing this uh, fifth generation warfare. He says, I'm talking about your brother, sister, mother, uncle, grandfather, your fellow workers, the ones that have not been able to penetrate that fog of information war like you have. He says, learn to park your anger when you engage with others who aren't quite awake. That is super good advice. Third task, learn to deploy fifth-generation warfare strategies and then do so again and again. Practice makes perfect. So he says, keep these things in mind. Commitment to integrity, respect for human dignity, always striving to build human community. You are not powerless. 
In fact, he says learning information warfare tactics is kind of like learning martial arts. You can become a powerful weapon. So use that weapon wisely, but don't allow yourself to be victimized. What that means is you've got to be able to discuss and persuade others of the truth as you know it. Maximal impact with minimal energy. So in the line at the grocery store, at work when you're just chatting with a colleague on social media, every single one of us can be fifth generation warriors. I'm not trying to give myself a battlefield promotion here, but I absolutely embrace the idea that I am a truth warrior. Not fighting against the truth, but fighting for the truth. And so wherever I happen to be standing, that's a place where hopefully there is some light being shown on what is true and revealing what is not true as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I encourage you, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. What I would like you to do is uh, subscribe to my show notes. That uh, great article by Dr. Robert Malone, Will You Be a Victim or Truth Warrior During 2023? That's an essay that's worth reading. It's a fairly lengthy essay, but uh, it has so many resources. Dr. Malone, I get, this is one of the things I do like about him. He is, uh, he's very thorough. Maybe that's just the nature of who he is as a researcher and as a medical doctor. He's very thorough in his information, and he, he spares you no details when it comes to explaining what he's about on a particular subject. Now, some people have that Hemingway-like gift of brevity. Okay, Dr. Malone does not, but his information is very solid. And if you are serious about being a truth warrior, wherever you happen to be standing, I think you'll find this worth your while. Just go to the thebrianhydeshow.com. Look for today's show notes. That's uh, January 6th. Whoa, today's January 6th? Oh, we should have some uh, wallowing, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, I hope you'll check it out for yourself. I want to share with you something else that I found really interesting. Um, you know, we're about to learn for ourselves that while history doesn't exactly repeat itself, sometimes it rhymes. And Doug Casey has an incredible breakdown of the parallels between the decline of Imperial Rome and the decline of the U.S. Now, this isn't meant to cause hopelessness or anything like that, but we can certainly learn and recognize some of the patterns, some of the same mistakes that are being made, and not buy into them when politicians tell us, no, 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 this is how it's supposed to be. So he says, as some of you know, I'm an aficionado of ancient history. Doug Casey says, I thought it might be worthwhile to discuss what happened to Rome, and based on that, what's likely to happen to the U.S., Spoiler alert, there are some similarities between the U.S. and Rome. Now, he says, before continuing, please seat yourself comfortably. This article will necessarily cover exactly those things you're never supposed to talk about, religion and politics, and do what you're never supposed to do, namely, badmouth the military. Now, there are good reasons for looking to Rome rather than any other civilization when trying to see where the U.S. is headed. Everyone knows Rome declined, but few people understand why. And he says, I think even fewer realize that the U.S. is now well along the same path for pretty much the same reasons, which I'll explain, explore shortly. Rome reached the peak of its military power around the year 107, when Trajan completed the conquest of Dacia, the territory of modern-day Romania. With Dacia, the empire peaked in size 
but I'd argue it was already past its peak by almost every other measure. The U.S. reached its peak relative to the world and in some ways its absolute peak as early as the 1950s. In 1950, this country produced 50% of the world's GNP and 80% of its vehicles. Now it's about 21% of the world's GNP and about 5% of its vehicles. It owned two-thirds of the world's gold reserves. Now it holds one-fourth. It was by a huge margin the world's biggest creditor, whereas now it's the biggest debtor by a huge margin. The income of the average American was by far the highest in the world. Today it ranks about eighth, and it's slipping. But it's not just the U.S. It's Western civilization that's in decline. In 1910, Europe controlled almost the whole world, politically, financially, and militarily. Now it's becoming a Disneyland with real buildings and a petting zoo for the Chinese. It's even further down the slippery slope than the U.S. Like America, Rome was founded by refugees from Troy, at least in myth. Like America, it was ruled by kings in its early history. Later, Romans became self-governing with several assemblies and a senate. Later still, power devolved to the executive, which was likely not an accident. U.S. founders modeled the country on Rome all the way down to the architecture of government buildings, the use of the eagle as the national bird, the use of Latin mottos, and the unfortunate use of the fasces, the uh, axe surrounded by rods, as a symbol of state power. Publius, the uh, pseudonymous uh, author of the Federalist Papers, took his name from one of Rome's first consuls. It was in Rome, military prowess is at the center of the national identity, as it was in Rome, military prowess is at the center of the national identity of the U.S. So when you adopt a model in earnest, you grow to resemble it. A considerable cottage industry has developed comparing ancient and modern times since Edward Gibbon published The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire in 1776, the same year as Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and the U.S. Declaration of Independence were, were written. Now, he says, I'm a big fan of all three, but the decline and fall is not only a great history, it's a very elegant and readable type of literature, and it's actually a laugh riot. Gibbon had a subtle wit. Doug Casey says, there have been huge advances in our understanding of Rome since Gibbon's time, driven by archaeological discoveries. There were many things he didn't know because he was as much a a philologist let me try that again, philologist as an historian, and he based his writing on what the ancients said about themselves. So there was no real science of archaeology when Gibbon wrote. Little had been done even to correlate the surviving ancient texts with what was on the surviving monuments or even the well-known monuments and on the coins. Not to mention scientists digging around in the provinces for what was left of Roman villas or battle sites and that sort of thing. So Gibbon, like most historians, was to a degree a collector of hearsay. But how could he know whom to believe among the ancient sources? It's as though William F. Buckley, Gore Vidal, H.L. Mencken, Norman Mailer, and George Carlin all wrote about the same event, and you were left to figure out whose story was true. That would make it tough to tell what really happened just a few years ago. Forget about ancient history. That's why the study of history is so tendentitious. So much of it is he said, she said. Now, Doug Casey says, in any event, perhaps you don't want to lecture on ancient history. You'd probably be more entertained by some guesses about what's likely to happen to the U.S. Well, he says, I've got some. Let me start by saying that I'm not sure the collapse of Rome wasn't a good thing. There were many positive aspects to Rome, such as there are to most civilizations, but there was much else to Rome which I disapprove of, and such as its anti-commercialism, its militarism, and post-Caesar, its centralized and increasingly totalitarian government. In that light, 
He says it's worth considering whether the collapse of the U.S. might not be a good thing. So why did Rome fall? Well, in 1985, a German named DeMont assembled 210 reasons. You know, he says, I find some of them silly, like racial degeneration, homosexuality, excessive freedom. Most are redundant. Some are just common sense, like bankruptcy, loss of moral fiber, and corruption. Gibbon's list is much shorter. And although it's pretty hard to summarize his six fat volumes in a single sentence, he attributed the fall of Rome to just two causes, one internal and one external. Christianity and barbarian invasions, respectively. Now, he says, I think Gibbon was essentially right about both because of the sensibilities of his era, however, he probed at early Christianity, in other words, from its founding to the end of the, or to the mid uh, fourth century, rather, very gently. Doug Casey says, I've decided to deal with it less delicately. Hopefully, neither my analysis of religion nor of barbaric invasions then and now will disturb too many readers. In any event, While accepting Gibbon's basic ideas on Christians and barbarians, I decided to break down the reasons for Rome's decline further into ten categories. Political, legal, social, demographic, ecological, military, psychological, intellectual, religious, and economic, all of which I'll touch on. And, as a bonus, toward the end of the article, I'll give you another completely unrelated and extremely important reason for the collapse of both the U.S. and Rome. Now, he says, you don't have to agree with my interpretation, but let's see what lessons are on offer from the history of Rome, from its semi-mythical founding by Romulus and Remus in 753 B.C., a story that conflicts with Virgil's tale of Aeneas and the refugee Trojans, to what's conventionally designated as the end of the Western Empire in 476 A.D., when the child emperor Romulus Augustulus was deposed by Odoacer the Germanic general who was in charge of what passed for the Roman army, which by then was staffed almost entirely with Germanic mercenaries who had no loyalty to the idea of Rome. It looks a lot like the American experience over the last couple hundred of years. First conquest, and expansion, then global dominance, and then slippage into decline. Now, in in the next segment, he just talks about politically what happened. Now, this is a multi-part article, so you're not going to get the whole thing in one shot here, but he says it's somewhat misleading to talk about a simple fall of Rome and much more accurate to talk about its gradual transformation with episodes of what paleontologists describe as punctuated disequilibrium. There were many falls. Republican Rome fell in 31 BC with the ascension of Augustus and the start of what's called the Principate. It almost disintegrated in the 50 years of the mid-3rd century, a time of constant civil war, the start of serious barbarian incursions, and the destruction of Rome's silver currency, the denarius. Rome, as anything resembling a free society, fell in the 290s and then changed radically again with Diocletian in the dominant period. More on this shortly. Maybe the end came in 378 when the Goths destroyed a Roman army at Adrianople and wholesale invasions began. Maybe we should call 410 the end when Alaric, a Goth who was actually a Roman general, conducted the first sacking of Rome. Now, Doug Casey says it might be said that civilization didn't really collapse until the late 600s when Islam conquered the Middle East and North Africa and cut off Mediterranean commerce. Maybe we should use 1453, when Constantinople and the Eastern Empire fell. Maybe the empire is still alive today in the form of the Catholic Church. The Pope is the Pontifex Maximus wearing red slippers, as did Julius Caesar when he held that position. Going to come back to this because there's just a couple paragraphs left, but... Does that not capture your interest? You're going to know a little bit more about why Rome fell. You might actually get a few ideas about why we, as a nation, 
are on the wrong path as well. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm sharing with you this article by Doug Casey, The Decline of Empire, Parallels Between the U.S. and Rome. So he talks a little bit about, you know, it's hard to pinpoint one specific time. Rome didn't fall all in one fell swoop. There were several staggering points that led to the decline. But everybody can agree, as an empire, it did, in fact, decline. He says, one certain reflection in the distant mirror is that beginning with the Principate period, Rome underwent an accelerating trend toward absolutism, centralization, totalitarianism, and bureaucracy. He says, I think we can argue America entered its Principate with the accession of Roosevelt in 1933. Since then, the president has reigned supreme over the Congress as Augustus did over the Senate. Pretenses fell off increasingly over time in Rome, just as they have in the U.S., After the 3rd century, with constant civil war and the destruction of the currency, the Principate, when the emperor, at least in theory, was just first among equals, gave way to the Dominate period, from the word Dominus, or Lord, referring to a master of slaves, when the emperor became an absolute monarch. This happened with the ascension of Diocletian in 284, and then, after another civil war, Constantine in 306. From that point forward, the emperor no longer even pretended to be the first among equals and was treated as an oriental potentate. The same trend is in motion in the U.S., but we're still a ways from reaching its end point, although it has to be noted that the president is now protected by hundreds, even thousands of bodyguards. Harry Truman was the last president who actually dared go out and informally stroll about D.C. like a common citizen while in office. In any event... Just as the Senate, the consuls, and the tribunes with their vetoes became impotent anachronisms, so have U.S. institutions. Early on, starting with the fourth emperor, Claudius, in 41 AD, the praetorians, who'd been set up by Augustus, showed they could designate the emperor. And today, in the U.S., that's probably true of its praetorians, the NSA, the CIA, and FBI, among others, and of course the military. We'll see how the next hanging Chad presidential election dispute gets settled. He says, my guess is that the bourgeoisie, the Romans called them the Capite Sensei, or headcount, will demand a strong leader as the Greater Depression evolves, the dollar is destroyed, and a serious war gets underway. You have to remember that war has always been the health of the state. The Roman emperors were expected, not at least, not least by their soldiers, to always be engaged in war. And it's no accident that the so-called greatest U.S. presidents were war presidents, Lincoln, Wilson, and FDR. We can humorously add the self-proclaimed war president, Baby Bush, military heroes like Washington, Andrew Jackson, Ulysses Grant, Teddy Roosevelt, and Eisenhower are always easy to elect. He says, my guess is that a general will run for office in the next election when we'll be in a genuine crisis. The public will want a general partly because the military is by now, uh, by, is now by far the most trusted institution of U.S. society. His likely election will be a mistake for numerous reasons, not the least that the military is really just a heavily armed variant of the Postal Service. So it's wise to keep Gibbon's words about the military in mind. Any order of men accustomed to violence and slavery make for very poor guardians of a civil constitution. Wow. One additional political parallel with the U.S., up to Trajan in 100 A.D., all the emperors were culturally Roman from old noble families. After that, few were. 
I mean, the U.S. now has had its first Kenyan president. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. And from here, he says this will be continued next week. Kind of sparks your interest. I'm interested to see what he says. I will plan on sharing that here on this program as well. But for now, you can check out the first installment of this in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, three quick things I want to touch on here. Dr. Jordan Peterson is now being told he must submit to mandatory social media communication retraining. They're talking re-education, or he's going to lose his license to teach or practice psychology. Got a great article from Dr. Peter McCullough on the details about Peterson being accused of heresy by the Ontario College of Psychologists. Okay, we were talking about truth warriors earlier. If you're going to be a truth warrior, you have to be prepared to suffer for your beliefs. Jordan Peterson is about to be stripped of his credentials to practice psychology or I presume to teach psychology in Canada. I think he's a popular enough guy that uh, he could probably find citizenship here in the U.S. pretty easily. But I don't know. Maybe that would be defeating, you know, what he's standing for. He's definitely standing against the Canadian authorities. The, uh, the college, the Ontario College of Psychologists is upset that uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson has been so outspoken against uh, the uh, boy tyrant, Justin Trudeau, in social media posts. Now, personally, I think he's been spot on. I think Peterson has been spot on in calling out Trudeau. And I have, I have, well, I was going to say I have nothing but contempt. I'll just put it as I have no respect whatsoever for, for Trudeau. He is a, a really good harbinger of where the World Economic Forum and its cronies would like to take us. And the Canadian people, unfortunately, are getting it good and hard. That's a tragedy. All right, another article I want to share with you. It's uh, the idea of where have all the voices for liberty gone? Clearly, those who despise liberty have made some pretty big strides in the last three years. Got an article here from Michael uh, Lesher. This is from uh, the Brownstone Institute asking, where have the voices of liberty gone? And we're not just talking the national voices. It's the idea that uh, we need to stand together against the common thread. If we'd stood together, Solzhenitsyn said, you know, back in the, in the 40s when he was arrested, if only we'd stood together against the common thread, we could have easily defeated it. So why didn't we? Solzhenitsyn's answer was, well, we didn't love freedom enough. Now, what Lesher points out here is that for us, the common threat that we face is a lot weaker than the one Solzhenitsyn had in mind. And, but the point is we don't need weapons to fight it. In fact, weapons would only get in the way. What we need right now are voices, lots of them raised in protest every time a bureaucrat or a tame Ivy League expert or lying journalist or a shyster in sheep's clothing tries to rob us of one more bit of our human dignity, one more inch of our civil rights. Then we need to clamor for all we're worth while there's still time. And Michael Lesher asks, do we love freedom enough for that? Okay, I don't want to make this self-serving, but this is this is why my company that I uh, established, what was it? Uh, wow, five years ago. Five years ago, I incorporated a little company called With One Voice LLC. And it may sound like, oh, With One Voice, your voice, of course. No, I'm not talking about With My Voice. My goal in what I do, and I have a lot of different projects going at any different time, but ultimately my goal is to bring people together on things that matter, like freedom, for instance. 
and to help people understand why they matter to the point that they're willing to set aside their differences and speak, or if need be, cry out, or if need be, to pray with one voice. Because we agree this is what matters most of all. By the way, don't uh, underestimate the power of crying out with one voice, you know, to, to the Creator. I think a lot of our problems could be solved if people could find the, the humility and, and, and draw strength from that source. But that's something that uh, cannot be imposed from the top down. It can't be something that you're coerced into doing. That's a recognition that has to come from each individual heart. And I got to work on it uh, the same as anybody else. But that's, that's what I'm about. I want to bring us together so that we can speak with one voice on those things that matter most. I've also got a great article here. This is from AmericanThinker.com. D. Parker explores the question of how to defy the fascist far left in their plans to destroy the U.S. Now, that sounds very militant to some, but um, this is actually some really good advice. You've got to be willing to recognize what's happening, for starters. I can't believe that there is anybody who could look at what's happening to our nation and still feel like, nah, I think everything's okay. This is pretty much, you know, on track. Or if, if anybody's, you know, if anybody's, you know, causing trouble, it's the people who are speaking up and, you know, clamoring for freedom. Those selfish SLBs, you know. I don't know how anybody could look at what our Congress has just done. You know, where, where they've passed this $1.7 trillion spending bill that very heavily influences and, and protects their friends in the welfare, warfare state while indebting further generations of Americans that haven't even yet been born and enslaving them with debt that they will be forced to pay off and they have no say in the matter. How could anybody look at that and say, yeah, well, you know, it's, that's okay. That's the way the founders wanted it. It most certainly is not. So if you want to learn how to defy the fascist far left in their plans to destroy the U.S., this is some really solid advice. I mean, you don't have to go out there and become a, uh, you don't have to become a, a disagreeable, conflict-driven person. You just have to be somebody who's clear on what they stand for, what matters, and where you are willing to draw the line and say, look, I'm not yielding another inch. you got to be willing to suffer the discomfort of breaking with the crowd because the crowd, for the most part, is going to go along. It's safer. It's more comfortable. Besides, I'm sure they're just trying to help us, and if anything really kooky was going on, why well, I'm sure the news media would tell us about it. I suspect you know better. So let's be warriors for truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show.